before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me to bring the doom is the green chicken himself, Doomberg. Hi, mate. Hi, Grant. How are you doing? Where, where do you find yourself in the world uh, this time? I'm doing great, thank you. I am in the Carolinas currently, the south of the Carolinas, after a, a long trip to Australia and a long trip back and um, upside down with jet lag. So I'm not sure why you weren't willing to record this at two o'clock in the morning, but... Um, <laughs> never mind, never mind. This, we've found a, well, a more convenient that, time for you. That brings a serious question. I, I, of course, since COVID, haven't really traveled all that much and my work doesn't require me to. You've been all over the world. What's it like on international planes these days? Uh, interesting question. You know, when I arrived in Sydney back in late January, I, I really wasn't sure what to expect given what I'd seen on social media. But I found Sydney to be perfectly normal. Now, that's not to say it wasn't a lot worse back in the day. Um, but Sydney was perfectly normal. I went down to Melbourne, um, where ironically I caught COVID. <laughs> so, so I was stuck in Melbourne for a while with COVID. I went to Queensland. Again, pretty normal up there too. Um, I got there in time for these century-old droughts, which were just unbelievable. And then I went to Perth, and Perth has just opened its borders to not just the world, but the rest of Australia. And that was like stepping back in, in time, 18 months, you know, armed police at the airports telling you to put your masks on and having to show identification to get into restaurants. It's, it's very strange, you know, you, you, you realise how quickly you return to the comfort of a world that you're familiar with and with a great sense of relief to, to be back to quote-unquote normal. And then say so going back to Perth kind of threw me a little bit. But, um, you know, the, the plane journeys weren't necessarily fun. You've, you've still got to wear masks and stuff. Although my flight from Australia back to the UK was interesting because British Airways have now said that if you are flying to a destination that don't require masks, then you don't have to wear a mask on the plane. So that was actually um, uh, as pleasant as an experience as a 24-hour <laughs> flight can get. So look, the, world, the world is definitely coming back. It's a struggle for me to see how we get to lockdowns again, um, particularly now that so many people have had COVID and no people have had COVID. And, you know, thanks to vaccinations and boosters and Omicron's kind of uh, the weakness of Omicron, it, it wasn't as bad as we all thought getting COVID was going to be at the outset of this. So I think it's going to be tough, if they, even if there's a new strain, to lock people up again. So I, I suspect and I hope, God, I hope the world is going to return to normal slowly but surely. Except for China. Except for China, yeah. But, well, I mean, look, China's normal is not necessarily our normal. That's, so, um, that's not true. So who, who knows? But, um, uh, you know, you, you and I have been chatting the whole way through this. There's been, there's been an awful lot going on. Um, and, of course, one of the big things has been, you know, news from the coop. There will be people listening that aren't up to speed on that. Why don't you let people know what, uh, what you guys are up to? Because it's, um, you know, it's big news. Yeah, it's big news. Um, and, by the way, it's very very fascinating experience to go through, one I'm sure you're familiar with, but 
at the beginning of April, we, we launched our paywall. We're still a free newsletter today, but we announced that we're going to be converting to paid after the month of April. And um, we've been taking on subscribers. It's been thrilling. It's been scary. It's been hectic. It's been stressful. It's been jubilant. It's been depressing, all wrapped in one, as I'm sure you can experience when you pour so much of your heart and energy and really our soul into developing this brand from scratch and the, the journey we've been on it. It's very, very satisfying to finally sort of begin the process of converting it into something that we can do for a living. As you know, the opportunity cost alone of trying to create a brand like this and to create a content creation business with respect to the things you could be doing is significant. And um, we felt it was time to make that jump. There's been an awful lot of uh, challenges. You know, there, there's no handbook for no. going going from writing to going uh, to running a business, and there's all manner of complexities with payment processors, and um, it's just really, really challenging. And I'm so I couldn't be more grateful for the strength of the team that we have. I can't imagine how individual content creators manage to do everything themselves. There, there really is just a whole myriad of, of unexpected ups and downs. Someday we'll tell the full story of our launch, and it'll make for a great Doomberg piece. But we're hoping to get through uh, the next couple of months before we do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just get through the launch before you tell the story, because uh, you never know when that last chapter is going to be, <laughs> going to be written of the launch, right? You just, you just don't know what's going to come at you. Indeed. Indeed. So, yeah, so we are um, we're going paid. The letters will be sort of the Duberg tier will be uh, all of the publications behind the paywall. And that's um, $30 a month or $300 a year. And then we've developed a pro tier for uh, targeting high net worth and family office and uh, investors looking for a bit more of a background uh, of our original research and direct access to the team. And so there's a Doomberg Pro tier as well for uh, potential customers who are interested. And we've had very good feedback. Uh, very, uh, our, our anticipated conversion is coming in on plan and our spread between the two tiers is about what we expected. And so in the end, despite all of the ups and downs and the challenges, it's been um, a very rewarding experience, very validating experience. We're very humbled by the support that we've received and very, very motivated to keep uh, producing content at the highest quality possible. Put out a couple of great pieces in the past week that we're very proud of. Um, piece this morning on the on sort of quantifying the natural gas situation in Europe. We've got a piece that we're writing, hopefully for publication soon, maybe by the time this podcast comes out about the water situation in the American Southwest. And uh, there's no shortage of really interesting things for us to research, to distill and to explain for our highly engaged readers. And it's very, very thrilling to be able to do this, you know, basically for a living now. And may everybody be so blessed as to discover the work of their lives and have the, the real privilege to be able to pursue it. Amen to that. I mean, the timing couldn't be better given your focus on energy and resources and supply chains. I mean, it's uh, it, the stuff you've written so far has been invaluable. And, um, you know, going forward, say that, that with those being your area of focus, again, I think it's going to be incredibly useful because um, the world is getting more and more complex by the day and not, you know, not just politically, but from a real world standpoint too. And, and I think that's... Um, that's going to create an awful lot more problems for an awful lot more people than realize it right now. Yeah, I mean, we, we like to joke around here that nobody bats a thousand, but we sure picked a good time to launch something called Doomberg. <laughs> no kidding. So, no kidding. Uh, you know, it's a bit fortuitous for sure, but uh, we'll take it, as they say. Uh, right. Exactly right. Take the win any way you get it. Well, listen, we have a yeah. guest joining us shortly, you and I. Um, why don't you let people know who's joining us and what we're going to talk about? Yeah, we're very happy to have um, Trevor Hall as a guest. And as, as our listeners will know by now, that our objective is to feature 
content creators who are producing great work that might be under your radar and might be worth giving a, a follow or, or listening to a few of their podcasts if that's what they do. And Trevor is one of those. He's a very charismatic host of a, of a popular show in the mining sector called Mining Stock Daily. Um, he's certainly got a voice for radio and a uh, really great guy. We both know him offline quite well and I'm thrilled to be able to to present this discussion uh, that we had with Trevor to your audience. And, and I know that they're going to enjoy it, especially given the level of interest amongst your subscribers with respect to all things precious metals and precious metal mining and, and junior mining. And so we had a very pleasant discussion with Trevor, and, and I, know, I know that people are going to very much like it. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a space that um, I suspect even if you don't follow it, you're going to be wanting to in the next couple of years. The situation we discussed just a couple of seconds ago continues to play out. You know, this is not going to go away uh, in short order. So uh, the resource sector, I suspect, is going to be the focus of an awful lot of people looking to either mitigate or make profit. And um, Trevor uh, is a great guide for that. So uh, what do you say, Doom? Why don't we bring him on? You bet. Let's do it. Trevor, welcome to This Week in Doom, my friend. How are you? Uh, Grant and Doomberg, thanks for having me. I'm incredibly grateful and uh, overwhelmingly humble to be here. Well, as, you, as you'll see in due course when you get to spend a lot more time talking to us, you'll, you'll realize how overstated that is, but it's, it's lovely to have you here anyway. Um, I think the best thing to really kick off is to get people familiar with who you are and what you do. Um, and the reason why we're going to chat later on will become self-evident, I think, once you do that. So when you give the listeners a little background and then um, the chicken and I can, can take it from there. <laughs> sure. Uh, I am uh, the host and purveyor of Mining Stock Daily Podcast. Uh, it, it is a podcast uh, audio forum, which is published on most any place you do get your your audio podcasts, uh, iTunes, Spotify, all the like. Um, we publish the first episode during the trading day about an hour before the market opens, which is really a new style format of news from the junior mining exploration and sometimes a big producer news, depending on the topic. Uh, that's really just uh, a news news briefing of what's happening in the market on that side of the industry. So that comes out about an hour before the market opens. Uh, and then throughout the days, we are also doing more market commentary and also corporate updates from companies doing good work throughout the exploration space and also some of the sponsors and partners we work with on the podcast. And then Friday, we dive into long-form episode, which is typically an hour-long episode to end the week. But it's all things mining, metals-related, uh, we've been diving into the macro a lot more in the last couple of years uh, to really get a better understanding of what's driving metals prices and also valuations of the miners and the explorers. Uh, and it's been just incredibly chaotic and um, a lot of fun to follow here in the last couple of years, given everything that's happened uh, from monetary and fiscal policy to supply disruptions. And uh, now this topic of deglobalization that's taking place. So it's uh, there's never a dull moment in the metal space. Hey, Trevor, uh, Doomberg here, big fan of your show and um, thrilled to have you on. I'm just curious, maybe give your sort of personal journey. How did you end up doing this? Um, I really love the, the daily updates that we get from you, but I'm just curious of how, how does Trevor end up doing what Trevor does? And clearly you're very passionate about it. You put out a great product. I'm just sort of curious to get a bit of your backstory. Um, yeah. So it may come to a surprise, maybe not much of a surprise to people. I actually don't have a finance background. 
or an economic background. I'm actually academically a journalist, have a uh, master's degree from the prestigious University of Nebraska-Lincoln in journalism and broadcasting. So I actually spent a lot of my early professional career making television documentaries. So I was working in Nat Geo and Discovery and doing a lot of uh, pretty interesting uh, films on like basically drugs in prison. So I spent like a summer in the Cook County jail in Chicago one time making a, a series for Discovery Channel. But I've always enjoyed interviewing people. So I've always interviewed people of all walks of life. You know, I've I've sat in the couch uh, across from like David Letterman and interviewed David Letterman about Johnny Carson. And I've also interviewed somebody in the Cook County jail who's imprisoned for some sort of felony. Uh, I, them, I was going to ask whether Cook County jail was where you first came across mining executives, but we, we can end that one slide. <laughs> yeah. That's the Vancouver jail, I think. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, so I've always just been intrigued with, talking to people and learning their story from all walks of life and um, kind of learning how to, to move the conversation and, and kind of be the pilot of discussion in the interview process. And so fast forward, you know, television really wasn't made for me. I didn't really, wasn't really wanting to get into that life and ended up meeting the woman who'd be my wife and uh, 10 years to go today, actually. And uh, we were just kind of working on, you know, what I wanted to do and get a little more stable. And I ended up working in academia for uh, a prestigious engineering and mining school just down the street here in Colorado, Colorado School of Mines. And that's where I found mining and exploration in this kind of marketing role. And I didn't know anything. I didn't, I knew nothing about mining. In fact, I probably would tell you that my bias was at the time against mining, but here I am in this academic setting surrounded by some of the smartest people academically in mining and exploration. And, you know, I just was generally curious and asked a lot of questions, a lot of dumb, naive questions. And obviously in academia there, you get a lot of smart answers. And was starting to kind of put the pieces together. But, you know, I knew nothing about technical reports. I knew nothing about drill assays and mining. My approach at the time was, all right, these companies are doing really interesting work. Why do people hate them so much? And, they, right. and you know, I would, what I realized is that they were doing a very poor job of communicating. They were doing incredible work, necessary work. There was always going to be a part of the population that disagreed with them on what they were doing. But how do you do that? You go and you, you, you try to communicate more effectively and efficiently. And so what I was doing, I was like, well, I'm going to start doing social media stuff for them. And then I did, I, I had started uh, managing some social media accounts uh, for a couple of small projects, one in Botswana, another one in Australia. And that really kind of spurred the, um, the when I started what is now Clear Creek Digital, like the whole, the parent company of what I started, so we were doing social media work, uh, and I did that for a couple of years. The first year was great, and then the market. I think you know. I think it was back two thousand seventeen. Uh, the market wasn't great, and so my year doing that wasn't great either. And I was like, well, okay, what can what else can we do? Um, you know, the, the social media thing really isn't going. 
And with my journalism background, content production background, and actually radio background, I was like, well, you know what? There's not really anything out there that's kind of news journalism oriented in the exploration space. Like, I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> And, and I, and I, I, I approach, uh, my buddy who lives around here in the, uh, Denver area, Dave Kranzel, who writes a great newsletter. And I said, Dave, I like, I got this idea and I need some help. Like you've been involved in this sector for a long time. Like, what do you think? And he said, yeah, let's try it out. And so Dave Kranzel comes to my house. We sit in my basement and I download, you know, the editing software and decide how we're going to do this. And, you know, I think that following Monday, I just recorded a five minute segment of expiration news and it was terrible. Like I go back and listen to it from time to time, just to remind myself of where I came from. Um, but that really was it. Like, you know, I just started putting news out straight from the press releases published early in the morning. And I did that for six months, uh, you know, woke up five o'clock AM, go down to my office, see the news, put it together, record it, publish it. And, um, six months later I had enough data and subscribers and that kind of thing. I could start taking it and approaching companies I wanted to work with and say, this is what I'm doing. Uh, would you be willing to support it? And that was three years ago, four years ago. Well, yeah, time. time flies. Time flies in the content business. Let me tell you, I, you look yeah. at my face, you wouldn't believe I was 27. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it is a fascinating space. And it's, um, as you say, there's a real lack of real journalism there. There's, there's an awful lot of promoted stuff. There's an awful lot of speculation. There's an awful lot of, you know, just flat out gambling going on in that space and rumours and, you know, some of the bulletin boards down in Australia, particularly when I lived down there, were, were unbelievable. How do you kind of cut through all that and get to the actual news in the sector? Because it's, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah, it's a fine line because I personally also, I blur that line because not only do I think of myself as a journalist and reporter in this space, but I'm also an investor. So therefore, I'm inherently biased. I also believe in the sector and have, you know, I, I know that there's been a generation of lack of expenditure and investment in this space. And so I feel like long-term it's, it's, it's going up. And so I battle that every day. And plus, you know, it's a sponsor driven business model. So I'm also taking money from companies I want to work with. Like, I mean, a lot of people, you know, cringe at that and I understand and very much respect it, but you know, in the news briefing, it is, I'm looking at the press release I report based on the press release. I try to edit out the hyperbole, you know, when they say bonanza grade or high grade or something like that, you know, well, what is high grade, you know, two grams per ton in an oxide deposit or, or 15 grams per ton in sulfide, you know, like it's completely subjective sometimes. So I try to take those types of words out and just state what the results were and what the company is planning on doing based on the news and the press release. Now, when I go into interviews with companies and CEOs, what I like to do is try to be straightforward and say, this company's either a sponsor of the podcast or I'm an investor in the podcast, inherently biased, but this is what the company's doing and this is where they want to go. So I try to be as transparent as possible, but it is, it is a fine line. So Trevor, 
a lot of questions come up as you sort of describe that. But of course, the, the same selection process for who you would want to commingle with your podcast would probably have a high degree of overlap with who you'd want to invest in anyway. And as long as you disclose it, but that sort of brings the deeper question with so much opportunity, but also so much fraud, I guess is the word that you would use. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of hucksters come in and around that sector. The junior mining sector has a reputation for people striking it rich and then also people getting swindled. How do you sort of assess the current state of the market here in North America vis-a-vis -vis the sort of historical reputation that it has? Do you think that reputation impacts the willingness or lack thereof of people to invest in the sector? What do you say to people when they bring up this critique of the sector that you've decided to make a living in? It's generationally underinvested in. It's misunderstood. We tend to go back and talk about the ramifications of the BRIAC scandal from the 90s and what that did to the reputation of the industry. I mean, it, trust me, it's a reputation. It's not great. It's not a great reputation. But I do feel, they, listen, that was 30 years ago. And I think if you asked a typical 40-year-old investor about BRIAC, they wouldn't know what it was. Uh, and so I think that's moving past. And obviously, people have done the research and history of the sector know what it was and um, <laughs> and really the, the effects it had on investment in the space and speculation. But I, I do think that it's it's coming to pass. I do feel the sentiment towards things you can physically hold in your hands has drastically changed in the last couple of years, not only in the gold space, but just obviously the base metal space, the supply demand fundamentals for copper. We've seen, um, you know, the base metal complex zinc and nickel just be complete debacles lately. And you and I have talked about that doom, but um, you know, I do think it's it, people understand that there is a growing demand for these physical resources and maybe people are starting to understand, all right, they don't grow on trees. You literally have to explore for them. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I do think that the sentiment is, is swaying a little bit. But when it comes to like bringing people onto my podcast and interviewing, listen, I, I, I keep an open door policy. If I think there's an interesting story out there and, and I don't work and they don't partner with the podcast... I will reach out or they can reach out to me and, and see if we can record something. And I'm happy to do that and, and give them time and distribution because I think it's important for the market and, and investors and speculators in the space to know about it, about what's going on. Because underneath like the big you know, scams and people not doing right through the industry, there is an incredible amount of great work being done great work and there's great people involved in here and people that want to do right and put mines into the ground to feed the supply chains. There's a lot more of that happening than the fraudulent stuff. And so that's what I want to focus on. But I also know that there are people within the sector that I know that maybe are doing questionable things. And we I've talked to them off mic say, let's come on the podcast. But if you come on the podcast, I'm going to ask you about this stuff. And needless to say, they haven't come on the podcast. Yeah, it's 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 that kind of space, you know. Um, but look, uh, the the mining industry has, out of nowhere, jumped into the place it's in now with supply shortages, and all of a sudden, people are starting to realise that if you want to start a mine, it's a ten year process that you can't just bring new supply online. So talk a little bit about that lack of investment over the last couple of decades and the kind of situation 
that the mining industry in general finds itself in right now? Because it, it's in a bit of a pickle, let's be honest. Yeah. Before we get there, let's so let's set it up. I'll give you a, some simple lesson in geology. So the Earth's surface, the crust of the Earth, is made up of the lithosphere, which is you know the land you stand on and the land underneath the oceans, the hydrosphere, which is the bodies of water, and also the atmosphere, right? So out of 118 elements in the periodic table, eight are known to be present in quantities exceeding 1%. So the odds are against you. The outer crust, which this outer crust is about 16 kilometers deep. We can only go so deep as humans. It's it, That's made up of oxygen, silicon, hydrogen, sodium, potassium, titanium, carbon, manganese. And these elements constitute more than 99% of that crust. So the things that we are really looking for, the gold, silvers, platinums, coppers, the stuff that make the market, you're talking about less than a half of a percent of the Earth's crust is has those elements in the greater than 1%. Now, we have been mining for... <laughs> generations, millennia. So the easy stuff closer to their surface is going to be hard to find less you know, it's been explored. It's, I would assume to say to find a new discovery closer to our surface is going to be very difficult. There are some plays out there in the exploration side that think they might having it, but it's difficult to find anymore. To find a deposit that's economic that you can make money on is just you can so you can see these risks building and building and building and building. It is not a favorable business model for anybody. However, it is an completely necessary business model because we depend on geologists and explorationists to go out there and find the next deposit to feed the supply chain so we as society can continue to develop and grow because we need hard things to build stuff. But the risks from the ground on up is so hard, but you are also rewarded if you do find something in generational wealth, whether you are the geologist on the ground that makes the discovery, the CEO that takes projects and maybe eventually builds a mine with a good margin and cash flow to the investors that see projects from early stage discovery with a drill to maybe a mine build out and acquisition. I mean, you are talking incredible wealth. A great prime example of that would be lately Great Bear Resources in the Dixie Project in Ontario. I, I know people who were in that exploration equity back when it was 25 cents. Uh, back in December, it sold to Kinross for 20, I think it was $29 Canadian. So you can see the risk reward there the risk is intense but the reward yeah. if things go right are just astoundingly beneficial for not only you as an investor but you know you, your family as well yeah so that brings up an interesting question you know the uh, sentiment of the market today and the, the sort of chasm between how producers are viewed and how explorers are viewed maybe you could comment on that a little bit you know um 
because obviously in the junior mining sector, you can invest in companies at various stages and the risk reward profile will be different, of course. But curious to get your thoughts on, on how the market is, is valuing those two subsectors of the junior mining sector. I, I do think that the producers um, are much more favorable in this environment, obviously because metal prices are high, they're making great money. Their, their margins are incredible, especially since the price of oil, you know, energy is their biggest line item on their sheets. Since that's come down from that $130 a barrel mark, you've started to see higher bids for the, especially the gold producers. Newmont made a new all-time high this week. So you're starting to see that. However, there's an incredible disconnect down the food chain of mining projects. And I guess underneath the metals producers are those developers. And what we're seeing there are these developers coming out with technical reports, whether it be pre-feasibility studies, preliminary economic assessments. But you're seeing an incredible increase in not only CapEx because of inflation, but also OPEX. So you know, if you published a PEA or a pre-feasibility study six months ago, I would say it's already obsolete because that snapshot in time six months ago is vastly different than where we are now, as we all know, because prices have just gone up. So development stage projects are, are getting the cold shoulder, if not getting sold off because of that. Now, the bigger spread right now is actually in the explorers. I mean, any metal producers are reaching close to 52-week to all-time highs. The explorers are like 52-week to all-time lows right now. So there's this incredible spread of you know sentiment there that in my short time working with Swiss, I've never seen quite a spread. But typically what happens is as money comes into the gold and the miners and their success there, the risk curve in the sector will start trickling down into the explorers. And that's where the real fun begins. So you can right now buy explorers that maybe have a small resource, inferred resource on these projects, start doing your, uh, your valuations and see like what's incredibly being undervalued in comparison to what they know they have in the ground. Now they're a long way off to being mine, but at least there's some sort of uh, there is valuation there that you can put at hand to decide where their market gap is in relation to what they have in the ground. And I've just never seen that big of a spread in this space and uh, just really, really undervalued, in my opinion. The uh, the mining industry, particularly precious metals miners, is a, is a kind of sinkhole for dreams, essentially. It has been for the longest time, right? And um, right. You te- this is t- tends to be how the cycle works. When when the price starts moving, the first thing people do is go to the majors because they want that certainty that if the gold price is moving, I can get leveraged exposure to it by owning the mining stocks. So you see people yeah, in institutions at the margin, it's not a big space for them, but they, they kind of crowd into the Agnicos, the... New Golds, the you know Barracks, the Newmonts, the, the big names, they, they kind of crowd themselves in there. The retail tends to be tends to kind of follow them, but they've also got one eye on the the fabulous riches on offer in the resource and in the explorer space, as you say. But that space is almost devoid of institutional money, and certainly has been. I mean, I, th- I think that time will come, um, perhaps soon, but it has been devoid. As a retail investor, how should people think about identifying? the kind of explorers that they maybe ought to take 
a swing at? I mean, what kind of criteria mm-hmm. do you look for to try and weed out the kind of ones that you don't want to go near? Uh, I think for the number one thing you should look at is the people behind the company. Have they had success before? Who's backing the people in management? That is critical. That's my number one. You know, uh, I want to talk to management. And that's funny, you know, the, the junior sector, exploration sector is really one of the few sectors that I know of where really you can email the CEO and see if he can schedule a phone call tomorrow or she, and he or she will most likely say yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that keeps me continued interest in this space is the people I love going to Vancouver and I love going to people's offices and sitting down and having a coffee and be like, you know, not only talking about the projects, but talking about the sector and the market itself. People are incredible assets behind any project. The second thing you got to look at is obviously jurisdictional risk. You know, what's favorable, what's not favorable. You know, for instance, as well as a country like Ethiopia or Eritrea is endowed with mineralization for exploration. I'm certain there's some pretty incredible uh, work to be done there. It's almost impossible to do that because of civil strife and war happening in those countries. So, I mean, not every jurisdiction is that risky, but even the U.S. is not without its risk. You know, the high, the biggest producer of silver, such as Mexico, is not without risk. So you've got to weigh in your risk on portfolio within the jurisdiction in which you're considering to put the money in. But a lot of people have done really well in some of those riskier jurisdictions. You know, think about Ivanhoe, Robert Friedland's Ivanhoe project in Congo, just one of the best projects that's come online in the last year. Uh, Lundines are working in Guatemala. Uh, you know, and it, it takes a strong will and a lot of experience to go into those countries and know how to get work done. So you mentioned a couple of plays there. Um, you know, I've been chatting offline a little bit about some gold and copper plays that might be sort of uh, particularly interesting around your radar. Why don't you walk through a couple of those um, and what your thoughts are on them so that our listeners can get a, a bit of a vantage point about how you're seeing the, um, the development of, of some of these key deposits? Well, I mentioned the spreads between the producers and the explorers and developers, and they're so drastic. But there are things that have been bucking that trend. And predominantly, it's been these big, large copper gold plays, big porphyry systems that look to be pretty economic and large with multi-year mine life. I'm thinking, you know, it's still early stages, but uh, Philo mining down in Argentina that's looking very attractive. And obviously the market's been rewarding them. BHPs come in uh, with investment into Philo. In the same area, Jose Maria Resources, which is a Lundin, another Lundin project, that is being acquired by Lundin Mining. So that's a big project with infrastructure. So that's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks, I, I believe. Uh, Western Copper and Gold's Casino project in Yukon, which has been... You know, it's been around for a long time, but Rio Tinto recently came in with $25 million to do their own work on the casino project. That's another large copper gold project that, every, you know, for years people say, well, it's too low grade. It's large, but it's too low grade. It'll never be mine. Rio Tinto thinks a little bit differently. So you're starting to see these major metal producers kind of scamper for new projects to bring into their own portfolio because they know that their own grades are dwindling, their projects life are coming to an end. They need to find 
places to where they can refill the coffers. And there are projects though that just, it's going to take a lot of money to get these things built with a little bit of time. And there's just, they're starting to wade into it. And I do think, I do think because they're going to have to, that there is going to start a major acquisition is going to have to happen soon in order for them to keep their resources up. And I think once one goes, I think it's going to be a cascading waterfall of more projects to go. You know, it's interesting, Trevor, just hearing you talk about, first of all, the criteria. It's funny that every experienced investor in the space I know looks at management than jurisdiction. And all the inexperienced people look at the resource. You know, there's this fundamental misunderstanding that you could have the greatest gold project in the world, you have it in the wrong place and with the wrong people looking after it, and it can be an absolute disaster. Whereas, you know, proven management in jurisdictions that are friendly and stable give you a much better chance of, of getting stuff out of the ground. But talking about those producers, it's been fascinating to watch this kind of shift towards people looking at the exploration space again, because it, it, it is always the kind of last place that people go, because look, everyone in that space who's had been in there for any time at all has scars on their back and grey hair, and it's, it's such a volatile place to be. Do you see any chance that that volatility is going to die down a little bit now, or at least be kind of volatile but moving steadily in an upward direction thanks to the broader commodities picture? Or are we still seeing you know, the, the, the sharp drops and sharp rises that we're accustomed to in the space? Uh, I, you know, that's the billion-dollar question right there. What's going to bring more money into the exploration side of the business? And I do think, listen, the market's rewarding discoveries. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, last week, uh, West Haven up in BC had a one heck of a drill hit, an incredible hit. And I mean, their share price rose, I think it was like 50% on the day. So the market is rewarding discoveries and good work, but it's time consuming. Exploration is not supposed to be all that exciting outside the drill bit. It's, it's just a slog. It's, you know, it's supposed to be a little bit boring, actually, a mine is not built overnight. It's not discovered and built overnight. We're talking decades, if not longer, of exploration work. And in this age of like, you know, well, we want to get rich tomorrow buying Tesla calls or something like that. There's no patience there for that type of investing. However, if we continue to see this great rotation from growth into value, and I think that's why, partly why you're seeing more money coming in to the, to the producers is because they are part of that value trade. I do think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that successful mining money trickle down into exploration because it is essential. You have to make new discoveries in order to feed the supply chain of new stuff. I have, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the sort of combination of management and a, and a well-known re resource and a pretty interesting deal that I'm sure when it came out, you and your friends were having having a bit of a discussion about it, which is, of course, the AMC investment in Highcroft, which is a mine that has been around for decades and is well known. When you saw that story, of course, you and I were chatting a bit about it, but the fact that, you know, Eric Sprott himself was involved in the deal and in the press release, but then you have the AMC crowd. And I wonder if that's the beginning of a trend of such investments on the part of Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC. What are people in the sector saying about it? And what were your thoughts when you read the story? Uh, it was laughable. I, I, it was, it, it was, from where I sat and where a lot of 
my close colleagues in the sector said, it just seemed gimmicky. Uh, Highcroft has been bankrupt two or three times. I think they're on the verge of being bankrupt once again until this saved them. That was a lot of kind of, you know, people much smarter than me and that can kind of manipulate financial jargon you know it's like like that's what they that is that appeared to what they did amc obviously has no business being in the mining space it doesn't fit their business model i don't know why they're doing it uh other than you know save themselves for something i don't know that's just my editorial opinion i wouldn't touch icroft then i wouldn't touch icroft now uh however outside of amc we are seeing manufacturers such as the electric vehicle market starting to look to source resources. We've seen news that, you know, a company like Tesla uh, agreed with, was it Talon Metals, a nickel project in Minnesota to offtake nickel in the future. And while Talon's still an exploration play, they're not producing any nickel. That was a little bit, it appeared to be a little bit more of a PR stunt than anything. Could it be successful in the future? Sure. But I do think you're going to start seeing a lot more manufacturers of products starting to localize, regionalize sources of raw materials, which is a big move. So could we see something like Ford or GE starting to invest more in the mining space? Yeah, I think you will. And that plays large part to do this deglobalization uh, move that we're seeing all around the supply chain. Listen, if we're going to have tougher relations with China, where are we going to go with our concentrate that we produce here in North America to get it refined and processed? Well, a lot of it goes to China. So if that's coming to an end, what capacity do we have here in the United States to get that done? Right now, not much. But we need to start really thinking about, listen, we can administer new development and exploration build new mines here in the United States. A lot of them are all ready to go. And we can create a concentrate in the United States, North America. But what we are lacking is that last step of the process, the refining process. So who's going to come in and build those smelters? Is it going to be private industry? Is it going to be those manufacturers, those EV manufacturers or, you know, widget manufacturers or whatever. I mean, that's what, that's the last piece of the, or not the last, but one of the big pieces of the puzzle that I think we need to figure out as we continue to kind of focus on America and North America regionally. Trevor, there's, we've spoken a lot about gold and uh, precious metals, but there's a couple of other elements that have got fantastic stories, certainly in the not too distant past. It's tin and nickel. So perhaps you could talk a little bit. Let's start with nickel because that's probably the story that some people are familiar with simply because of the headlines uh, around the LME. Talk a little bit about what's been going on in the nickel markets and, and what it might portend for the future. Uh, I, so I'll start with the nickel because yes, but it's not the chronological order because tin really set hey, the listen, stage. You're, you're the guest. You can you can take it in whichever <laughs> order you want to take it. You want to start with tin? Be my guest, my friend. Yeah. Well, I will say so. What happened in the nickel market was obviously expedited because of Russia being turned off from the global supply chain. They supply. I, I don't remember the number. I think it's like 30 percent of 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 class A nickel to the market. But what happened in the nickel market was precluded by tin. And it's just an absolutely incredible story. In fact, last year, we I called it a very tin special on the podcast. And I think it was like 
the second or third highest listened to podcast in the history of Mining Stock Daily. But what's interesting is, listen, so tin is used as solder. So it's the glue that can bind one metal to another that doesn't chemically compound well. So that's when you need tin for the glue. Now, when we talk at the time, we were talking about chip shortages. Well, you can create as many chips as you want, but if you don't have the solder made of tin to glue that, you're in deep shit. And what we saw is because of COVID, Myanmar, Indonesia, China, they were taken offline. And there was one company out of Congo that I came to learn about called Alphaman Resources that has just this incredible world-class tin deposit that hardly anybody was talking about except for a select few people on Twitter in the mining sector. We call it Mintwit, hashtag Mintwit. But Alphaman Resources was supplying 4% of the world's tin supply to the market while stockpiles of tin on the LME and another exchanges were dwindling lower and lower. If you look at the chart over the last year of tin, it went from like $12,000 a ton up to $47,000 a ton. Well, alpha men, I know people were in it at like 17 cents, I think is up above a dollar Canadian right now. We're talking incredible returns in a short period of time because of supply disruptions in an interesting market such as tin. So that precluded what we saw there and what we were talking about on the podcast in the tin market, we had guests come on and say, watch the nickel space. It's the same thing. There's not enough nickel coming online and there's higher demand because of battery technologies. Now here we have Russia who supplies a lot of that nickel being shut off. Now we saw nickel go through the roof and, you know, doom you and I did an episode about uh, the LME and the nickel debacle a couple of weeks ago. We've seen zinc is moving up higher. I think it's above two bucks a pound. Now that's incredibly high for zinc. I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same dynamics in the copper market, because we're seeing incredible demand and lower supply from copper and their rumors I'll only stress that I'm only hearing rumors that that same dynamic that we saw in tin and nickel and zinc can and could happen soon in the copper market. So one of the big themes of our work at Doomberg has been the fact that because of environmental nimbyism, we have, in effect, outsourced a lot of the mining of these critical materials to the developing world. And one place where there's an awful lot of copper being mined where we're seeing social upheaval because of inflation, of course, is Peru. Wondering how closely you're watching that situation, the potential impact on the copper market because of that unrest, and uh, any insight that you can give on that would be uh, would be great. I'd be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot of insight. I, I am watching. I, I, I will feel the dynamics. You know, Peru is one. I, I'd be watching Chile a little bit more to see what happens with the copper side. But you mentioned nimbyism. I mean. I think this is where I shake my head is on one side, you, you have a bureaucrat from the federal government saying, you know, we can source metals right here in the United States to feed the supply chain for the electrification of your vehicle in the world. But then we turn around the next day and hammer these good projects that are ready to go and say, well, we need another six months of environmental work. 
We cannot continue to kick the can down the road, getting some of these projects greenlit and going that can like resolution mine in Arizona, which can supply at one time, 25% of the country's copper demand. And then that's still in limbo, but we want to electrify the country. Well, you can't have it both ways. So there's got to be this come to Jesus moment. And I don't know if it comes from the voter side or if it comes from some politician that literally has the backbone to say, you're not going to please everybody. This is what we need to do. Because if we don't do it, we're just going to price everybody out. Everything's going to go expensive. That electric car that now is, I don't know, $80,000, you're going to pay $160,000 in a couple of years time because prices to go in to build those things are just skyrocketed. So it really is an issue of supply. Like, are we willing to bring supply online or are we going to, you know, just kind of give in to the protests all the time? And I, I'm an environmentalist. I want clean air, clean water. And I would love the electrification of the world, but I'm also a realist. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? But I don't know. But it's got to start. It's got to start somewhere. Trevor, you've got to pick one or the other these days, my friend. You can't. You can't be both. You can't be an environmentalist and a realist. That doesn't. That doesn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, it, it is interesting because this is something that um, it, it is a huge problem, and, and unfortunately, I suspect when you talk about it's going to take someone with backbone to stand up and say this is what we need to do, and we're going to have to do it. I don't see that on our horizon anytime soon, and it's a shame because you know over the last 25, 30 years, the business of mining has gotten so much better so much greener uh you know people struggle Mm -hmm. to kind of put the two together but you know as you say it's it's a necessary evil people will call it but the processes and the regulations and the uh the compliance of all these companies with with the rules has gotten so much better over the last couple of decades it has gotten better you know is it perfect no but it is getting better. You know, I, I do a lot of work in Canada, huge mining country and resources, a lot of raw materials. They have done an excellent job of working with their First Nation communities. Has it always been perfect? No. But you can see, for me coming from the United States, where it always seems like industries always butting heads with the First Nations populations. Up in Canada, it doesn't, it seems like it's a little bit more sound, that relationship. And I really think that there is an opportunity there for the U.S. mining industry to learn what the Canadians have done and try to work within the same framework. But like I said, it's not perfect. However, I do feel the First Nations in Canada have a lot more say into what projects can move forward on their land, and therefore are much more involved and appreciative of industry than anything we have here in the States. Well, hey, listen, Trevor, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. We could go on for many more hours. Where is the best place for our listeners to find your work um, on Twitter and then uh, Substack and, and on the podcast? Just give us a reminder again as we close up here. Yeah, Mining Stock Daily podcast is found basically anywhere you get your podcast iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts. Uh, We do have a website, miningstockdaily.com. I am on Twitter, at Trev A. Hall. We did launch a Substack 
uh, beginning of the year, MSD Extra on Substack, which is a little bit more macro commentary. And then also my chance to where I really editorialize some of what I'm doing and my thoughts in the space. Uh, that's been a lot of fun and we it's grown pretty rapidly in the last four months. So yeah, it's been great. Fantastic. Well, Travis, we wish you well. Keep up the great work, my friend. And um, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Duberg. Well, Dumi, you know, it's it, the resources sector, it, it's such an interesting space. And, um, you know, I, I've been paying attention to it for more years than I care to imagine. But it really does feel like now is a time when I think a lot more people will and should start paying attention to the space because um, I think we, we're in a new world. And I think that world is going to be heavily centered around commodities, who has them, who can get them out the ground, who has access to them. And um, I think it's going to be a, a tremendous space for people to be uh, to be involved in in the years to come. Yeah, and it's great to have him on. I, I do quite enjoy his podcast, and it's a view into the world um, at a level that you, you won't get from sort of traditional CNBC or even yeah. Wall Street Journal. It's so it's so criminally underfollowed, the sector, given the criticality of it vis-a-vis -vis the economy which is part of the reason why he was talking about the explorers being so undervalued. But also as somebody who writes a lot about energy and commodities, um, it is a fascinating sector to see. It is truly a wild, wild west. There are fortunes to be had, um, but there are also fortunes to be lost if you get it wrong. And so that's why certainly anybody listening who is new to this space, make sure you do a lot of homework before you commit your hard-earned capital to, uh, to any particular investment because it is a tricky space. You can make a lot of money, but also you can lose it pretty quickly. Yeah, it's, it's a very tricky space. And as we touched on there, people are the key in this sector. You've got to have good management and you've got to have management with a track record of success. Sometimes you get lucky and, and you know, you'll know you find guys with no proven track record who strike it lucky. But as an investor, in terms of risk management, you really want to make sure you focus on people that that are sound. And, and also, as Trevor said, have, have their projects in, um, in good jurisdictions. Well, Demi, my friend, it is time to wrap up another episode. My thanks to you for joining me from the coop. Thanks, of course, to you for listening. We will be back again soon with another episode of This Week in Doom. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.